Hello there, I'm Patrick Strofe, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and founder of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to the M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Jason Somerville, founding partner of GW Partners. GW Partners is a unique firm that combines the best elements of operational consulting, financial management, strategic planning, and M&A advisory services to partner with consumer brands to transform them into far more valuable and coveted strategic acquisition targets. Jason, it's great to have you here. I've been in touch with you and your other partner for a long time, so it's a pleasure having you today. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Happy to be here, man. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Now, before we get into GW Partners, let's just start with you. What brought you to this point in your career? Man, uh, it's been a bit of a journey. It's uh, it's been good. I, I kind of did a round tripper, is how I like to say it. You know, I I started my career in institutional investment banking, so mm-hmm. I started with B of A. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with kind of the traditional bulge bracket type of path, but you come out of college. There's an analyst class. You know, I was in their analyst class. Um, there's about a hundred people usually coming into a bulge bracket like that. That's a lot. That was a larger one. Um, and then you kind of make your way through. I got promoted. Um, a lot of people have to go back to B school, but I was lucky enough to be promoted. Uh, I didn't have to go back to B school, uh, which was great. But then I, I'm sure, I don't know if they regretted it, but I promptly decided that, you know, a big bank was not the place for me. So I think I was, it was about a year after the promotion, I decided to move staying in capital markets. I went to a, um, a hedge fund in Miami. It's called Bayview Financial. Mm-hmm. Um, which was great because it kind of moved in that entrepreneurial direction. And that was sort mm-hmm. of the, my, my path I'd say has become increasingly entrepreneurial over my, you know, now 20 plus years. Um, that was kind of that first step. And, uh, it was an awesome place because it was private. The owners were really smart, dynamic people who I really respected part of something that grew, you know, when I started there, we were under a thousand employees and, you know, at our peak, we were over 5,500, you know, offices all over the world. Uh, when I was there, you know, I was there for a little over six years. We did about 30 billion of deals, um, which was awesome. I ran capital markets. So, you know, I was kind of, I think most people would look at me as probably number three or four in the company, um, which oh, wow. was great. Uh, and then, you know, the financial crisis hit and I like to, tell people I was probably half lucky, half good, that I had sort of decided towards the end of that, that, you know, I might want to take some time and maybe go work for myself entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell people the life of a banker is not conducive to a family. And I had two little kids Mm -hmm. and I was not seeing a lot of them. And I decided, you know what, this has been great. I've been trained better than anyone I, I know but it's time to kind of move on. Uh, and then that's when I moved basically entirely into the entrepreneurial world. And I haven't been a W2 employee since. So um, it's been great. I, um, you know, like a lot of people will tell you, there's good days, bad days. You know, some days you wish you had a paycheck that uh, that you could rely on. On other days, you're so happy you don't have a boss. So um, I did a lot of stuff over these last sort of 10 or so years. Yeah, you know, I started, you know, when I say the round tripper, so I left finance, 
I started to kind of invest in buy and grow companies. You know, I did that all kinds of different sectors, you know, aviation, construction. I've had a couple different consulting endeavors, uh, gold mining, all kinds of fun stuff. And then it was actually through, I was exiting a company. This was a company that was actually in the home and uh, commercial modification space. So mm-hmm. what we would do is we would build, um, we would make buildings accessible for people who are disabled. Okay. And so did that for a few years. And I had a company that I grew up in and was selling. I kind of got some exposure to that smaller company M&A world. Uh, and that's really what gave me this idea of, you know, I feel like I can bring all of this big banking training coupled with all my entrepreneurial operational experience and kind of bring it all together and, and help founders in a way that I don't think a lot of people can. So that's kind of how I ended up in, in this space. Well, it sounds almost like uh, with the current news out there, it's almost as if you're Bill Belichick and it's like, I'm going to go to the community college down here and help them with their, help them with their football team. And, you know, with, with that depth of knowledge and experience, boy, that's very, very valuable. So you go and you and your partner go ahead and form GW Partners. Let's talk about that and start with this because you, you didn't name it Somerville Capital or Somerville Advisors. How'd you come yeah. up with the name and then talk about GW Partners? Yeah, so we actually started out under a different brand. It was called Global Wired Advisors. Um, yes. And I think that, you know, the way we set that up was a more traditional M&A advisory practice. So again, your audience that if you've interacted with any kind of intermediary, even the best ones, and we considered ourselves and do, you know, one of the best, it feels sort of transactional, the relationship, right? It's kind of mm-hmm. someone comes along, you know, they want to go take their company to market. It takes us maybe 30 days to prep it. Then we're out in the market. Usually you're under an LOI within a month or two, and then your diligence closing and very transactional. And I think that, you know, as our business grew, it, it was successful financially, but we just kept looking at it. Chris and I, who's my partner, we kept looking at it like, you know, if we could only get to these companies earlier, Right. If we could only, you know, come in and actually impact the um, the future of these businesses prior to their sale. So, you know, we we actually had we had a couple other partners as of like a couple years ago. You know, we kind of decided to sort of part ways with those two other partners and kind of refocus the company on this model that we're working with now, which is, I think. That's why we sort of say we marry up this operational consulting and strategic planning with the M&A advisory. So, you know, we still do some of, you know, that transactional type work. I mean, we're still open to it if the fit is right. But what we're really looking for is a partnership. And that's where the, the word partners comes in. It wasn't chosen at random, even though it's a somewhat common word to use. We chose it very specifically because... You know, in our arrangements with our clients now, one, two years out from a sale, we basically become a full partner of the business. We we act like a board advisor. We act like an active part of the team. And I think what happens is over time, people just our clients just start referring to us as though we're on the team. Right. We're, we're interacting with all the stakeholders. We're basically, you know, a member of the organization. And then 
that allows us to, I'd say, get the company ready and improve it so that it's in its most optimal state when it ultimately goes to sell. So you're not legally formally become partners with equity or, or something like that. You're, you know, partners in name and then the larger return is probably going to be as that great added value goes that gets reflected for you. Is that how the structure? That's works? right. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. exactly right. So, you know, we think it's an even greater alignment with the owner. Right. And I think that's also what defines a partnership, right. Is alignment. Mm-hmm. And so, we are, you know, we're kind of in the trenches, we're arm in arm, we're right there with them to try to build the company. And so that also, right, is very indicative of a partnership. And so well, I mean, we, we yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I think that's, you know, ideal risk wise as well for an owner founder, because there are a lot of owners that want to get to the next level. Do they all want to sell or do they, you know, let's see how it goes. Maybe they think about selling, but then you may give them some epiphanies and all of a sudden they're having a lot more fun and they can get at a higher level. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the key, right? I think that we look at everything through an acquisition lens, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what drives a lot of our behavior. But I would say it's not that uncommon for, I'd say the goals to shift, right? As Mm -hmm. we're working with someone, because I mean, look, let's think about real life, right? In real life, you know, you may sit down and you're developing a company, let's say over the course of a year and the life cycle of a company, especially the kinds that we work with, that's a long period of time. A lot can go on. Now, in our view, hopefully all that's going on is all positive. And historically, that's the case. But you can see, I see it all the time. I see points of view shifting at the founder mm-hmm. level. And a lot of times what you just described is a byproduct, right? So they look at it and say, okay, wow, I've now developed this organization into something that, you know, I I feel like has even more potential, right? So Mm -hmm. now I'm trying to decide, okay, do I go ahead and go to market this year or do I give it another year or so? And I think our view is just, look, we're, we're along for the ride. We're here to help you improve. And even though we get paid most of our compensation when the company sells, it is in all of our best interest to do that at the right time. So, you know, if someone comes along and, and they have almost like this 18-month plan and that turns into a 36-month plan mm-hmm. and that's because this company is rocking and rolling and they just want to keep running it, that's actually better for everybody. So we're, we're absolutely there being nimble and that happens all the time. But I think the other byproduct is there's almost nothing we would do looking through that lens that would make your company worse. It's pretty much all making your company better. Even if you're pulling, even if you're not pulling the trigger on the sale for X more, you know, months. I think that, you know, and you've been experiencing this a lot more than I, but a sale of a company doesn't mean the owner and the management team departs and, you know, heads off into the sunset. They can go along with the ride roll equity and be part of that larger uh, venture going forward post-closing. And I think because you're partnering with them, you've got those interests in mind. So if they want to see how far they can bring it, you're right along with them. That's right. Yeah, and it's funny. We could do a whole episode on just that part of a transaction of the owner, how they're viewing both pre and post deal, right? And it's funny because you know we work heavily in the consumer space, heavily in the digital consumer space. 
And I think there's been a lot that's gone on over the last three years, um, good and bad. And I think that the, the, the result is that most acquirers, when they're looking to buy a company like this, have kind of come to realize they, they, they need this founder to stick around. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it, it kind of applies whether you have a $5 million company or a $50 million company. It's kind of almost the same. They need them to stick around a lot of reasons. Again, we could do a whole episode about, yeah. but that's absolutely true. So there's there's kind of the need, but then there's also the way you look at the transaction opportunity. You kind of pointed it out. It's like, all right, well, you know, I was having a conversation with a potential client the other day and and granted, life's full of choices, right? It's like, okay, well, look, if you structure it a certain way and you're willing to say, stay on for a couple of years to support, you might sell your company for say $30 million. Now, if you're trying to do a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, get me out of here, you might still sell your company. I'm not saying you might not sell it, but you might only get 12, 15, whatever, right? So you can choose like, well, I'll take the less money because I want to get out of here or I'll go ahead and take the larger deal and participate in it. Um, a lot of times that's what it means too, but I'd say more and more post all the pandemic stuff and e-com mm-hmm. doing what I would call yeah. like a pop and drop, people are more like, Hey, I'm not really willing to buy this thing. If the founder's not going to be here for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think it's critical and we'll get into explaining your ideal target and what, who you look to serve. But I think there's a mindset that you guys are looking through that I, I I'm picking up on is that. People don't want their companies, they're not going to engage with you to get their companies. So please give me a good price. I want to sell now. They have a deeper desire. I want my company to be better. Now, if it's better and I get a higher price, great. But I want this to be better. Can you make me better? I I, I get that feel because it's really coming out loud and clear. But share with me your thoughts on that. And then what profile of client are you looking to serve? Yeah, so I think I think that's a good call out. You know, where where we tend to be a really good fit with with founders are those that I think still they have they they have some passion for their brand still, right? They have they have some motivation to continue to develop. Now, granted, they're looking they're looking at that sort of north star as being an eventual sale. That's kind of the place they're trying to go. But between now and then. They have a lot of, of again, passion and ambition and motivation to want to, you know, make their company as good as it can be uh, over the next again one or two years. Mo- most people we work with, at least at the moment, have kind of that two year sort mm-hmm. of, or maybe a little less kind of time horizon. So those are the those are really good fits for us, right? In you know, every now and then, though, again, an opportunity comes along, somebody wants to sell their business, and and it just it works. And we'll go ahead and, you know, we'll take it to market right away. But that isn't really where we're focused. You know, we're focused on working with those founders and making it making it better. And, you know, for us, you know, the sector we we're really, you know, we play a lot in and most in is in that consumer products sector. Uh, Most of the companies we're working with when we start working with them are, you know, between say mm, probably five to twenty million in revenue top line um, on average, and then normally, you know, with within our sort of while we're working with the business, 
It's typically, typically it would be a two or three kind of times growth would be the, the expectation. It sometimes works out more, sometimes works out a little bit less, but that tends to be generally kind of where it falls. So if we think about, you know, from the, if we say time zero to, to time, you know, 24 months out, what's the, what's the likely growth, you know, that we're looking for, it, it tends to average out to maybe around three times. So, you know, and along the way, that's obviously just financial growth. The, the, the expectation is development and evolution is happening everywhere, which is also making their company more, more valuable. So. Any territorial restrictions, limitations across the U.S.? No, I mean, all over the world. We work with brands all over the world. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about this sector is that it's so borderless. You know, I mean, we counterparties, service providers, brand owners. I think that what does tend to be um, a common element is even if a brand is outside of the U.S. in terms of where it's based, most of its sales are in the U.S. Not a requirement. It just, again, tends to be how it works out. And then as far as like, you know, product categories, I'd say at this point, I can't think of one we haven't worked across. Um, mm-hmm. We tend to do a lot in, uh, in in beauty. We tend to do a lot in juvenile products, baby products. You know, we do a lot in apparel, uh, home goods. Or those are the areas we tend to be kind of most active in. Um, but I think, again, that's that's more, I think, by virtue of there tends to be more brands in those categories. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'll ask my guests, you know, what are you guys bringing to the table that your peers aren't? But you've already covered that in spades. Uh, so I've got to go a little bit off script here and just ask sure. you another question is just it, it always amazes me is somebody brings in an expert like you and where they know their business really well and they're banging up against the wall. They want to get to that next level and they go ahead and they engage with uh, GW Partners. Share with us any story you have of an epiphany you've witnessed where you're sitting there with the owner and the founder and you're going through operational or financial, whatever. And you say, well, why don't you try this or try that? And they just look, you can do that. And then you see the light bulb go on. It's a good, good question. So I think a a couple come to mind, I would say one, this is something. And, and if Chris were here, my, my business partner, he'd be banging the table that visiting your suppliers, like this sounds like, so, you would be surprised how many people do millions and millions of dollars of business with a supplier. They've mm-hmm. never visited them. Wow. Um, and, and it, it's, it's amazing how many people never even thought to. So you're like, okay. And, and what they also don't, I think fully appreciate is, especially when you're dealing with, you know, Asian suppliers or even middle Eastern or Indian, um, which a lot of consumer products companies yeah. are, what they don't understand is like during those meetings is when you can make all kinds of really interesting deals, but you can only make them if you're there. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yep. And so they, they, again, that's a big one. People are like, wait, that's really how it works. I'm like, oh yes, that's how it works. You have to go, you have to go to dinner, you have to go out for drinks, you have to, and then you have to build a rapport. And then once you do, that's when, uh, a lot of more advantageous things like terms and prices and product development come your way. So that's one that comes comes up a lot, right? For sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of times um, people have epiphanies when we talk about what metrics matter and okay. which ones which ones don't. 
Um, I think another one is sort of like, you know, looking at the different margin points within a business, you know, why each margin point matters, you know, and, and how the acquisition market looks at it. And they say, wow, I never realized that, you know, even though my gross margin was really good, my, you know, call it my contribution margin is well below benchmark, right? And they had no idea they were even below benchmark. They didn't even know there was a benchmark, right? Yeah, and so that's, that's another one that happens yeah. all the time, I'd say. I'm, I just think a lot of them, are, they're just so basic that they get overlooked. It's like a, the, these are truths that are hiding in plain sight. And mm -hmm. it takes, you know, that, that voice, that perspective from the outside to bring that on, which is another tremendous value you guys are bringing at GW Partners, which is great. The reason why we are having a lot of volume in M&A transactions at the lower middle market, even micro market level, and it's following what's been happening in the middle market, is that M&A deals are more possible now because buyers and sellers can transfer a lot of risk away from the parties through insurance. And the, the product out there really is rep and warranty insurance. And, you know, don't take it, you know, my word for it, but Jason, good, better, and different. What has rep and warranty insurance done for, you know, your deals? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think the the unfortunate part is a lot of times, you know, we're, we're doing deals that, you know, historically are typically between say 15, 10, 15 million and up 30, 40 million. Uh, is kind of our average. We go up to a hundred. You know, we'll we'll do a few a year up at that level. But it's it, it's been cost prohibitive for smaller mm -hmm. deals. That's been that's been the real issues. You know, I spent a, a chunk of my career in much larger transactions where rep and warranty insurance was very common and mm -hmm. it wasn't cost prohibitive. And then you know, I found that when we started working in this lower middle market area historically, you just, you don't see it used a lot and usually because of cost, right? And I know there are now, which, you know, we've talked about recently, some very interesting alternatives now that, that you know, we can, we can tap into. So I'm really excited because, you know, there's been more deals than I can count where, you know, the, the escrows, the holdbacks, you know, the, all of those, you know, the, the indemnifications and the, and the buckets and all that become massive, massive sticking points, especially in founder sales, because most of these founders have not done any sales before. They don't understand why there even is indemnifications. They don't understand, like they figure it's just a, you know, thought this was just a final sale, right? Like no, no take backs, no returns. Um, and, and when they find out, I mean, granted, we obviously are prepping them, but well, a lot of times I think they, they sort of don't fully understand it until the documentation starts to, starts to fly around. Like, oh, wait a minute. Are you telling me that if it's proven that I've breached a rep that I would have to give back a large portion of the purchase price? Like, wait, that doesn't seem fair. And we have to then kind of explain what I would call the birds and the bees <laughs> of M&A. Like, well, this is why this is the case. And if you get rep and warranty insurance, it takes a, a lot of that or almost all of it off the table. So I'm excited for the developments that are that are happening in the market where some of these smaller deals can, it's a real option now. Yeah, I think that's, we're very proud of this with reps and warranties where, you know, the buyer naturally, they don't want to get stuck buying a lemon. And the seller doesn't want to be kept on the hook, 
you know, indefinitely post closing for stuff that maybe the seller just forgot or didn't know about and is out of the seller's control. And so you've got that natural tension that happens. And with owners and founders, they take it very, very personally. And mm-hmm. what's been great is while rep and warranty insurance has been become literally standard now in deals north of 100 million, there are, you know, exponentially more deals that are under $20 million of purchase price that owners and founders could really uh, benefit by having that. And what's great is there is now a product out there. It's a sell-side product called TLPE, Transaction Liability Private Enterprise, and is built to write lots of policies. You know, they want to get by with volume, so they make it inexpensive, only about $15,000 per million dollars in limits. Uh, There's no underwriting fee. They make it uh, simple where it's an application and some financials. So the documentation process and the diligence process by the underwriters is nominal. I mean, it is very, very little. They know what they're doing, so they're not, you know, passing this through too quickly. But, you know, they take a valued look, but they accept the fact that, look, these are transactions that are simple. They're low risk, and so they should also be low cost. And they can turn around an M&A transaction for, you know, sub $30 million deal in a matter of a day or two. And at a cost, like I said, about $15,000 per million dollars in limits. And that just gets this thing through. We're very happy because it's something that we can bring to the sell side of the table that, you know, hadn't been there before. Before, buy side policies are exclusively the province of the buyer. If the buyer didn't want the coverage, even if the seller paid for it, it didn't happen. And now we have something to protect, even writing a policy that covers the escrow so the seller could go ahead and just have that escrow covered. They don't have to cover the whole deal. But with a policy, the intent is you have insurance, you show that to the buyer, no need for escrow. And so uh, we expect to see quite a bit. And that's why we're so excited, you know, talking to you, GW Partners, because it's your clients, the ones that we want to serve in this area. Now, as we're going in through, we had mentioned, you know, we're recording this right beginning of the year 2024. And, you know, there's a lot out there that could be happening. Uh, you know, Jason, I'd love your perspective. What do you see happening in 2024? Uh, and this could be either macro or just re- with respect to GW Partners in the consumer product space. Yeah, I think macro, you know, 2023, just historically worldwide was was a pretty low volume year for Mm -hmm. M&A. I think uh, 10 year low, I would say. So, you know, what what we're seeing for 2024 is we're expecting a pretty big snapback uh, and a lot of volume to happen this year. Really, you know, you've got a, a few things lining up, right? You've got the Fed, uh, who is now sort of turned somewhat dovish. I think we can argue over how many rate cuts there might be this year, but what seems to be kind of the full consensus is that we're not going to have any more rate hikes, um, which that that is huge because, you know, what that does for buyers is it it now kind of gives them a reason to feel like risk is is kind of reducing, right? So, you know, the backdrop of the rate hikes last year was you've got inflation that was, you know, really kind of starting to run away. That's now stopped, which also contributes to that risk uh, profile. You don't have to worry about your cost of capital going up. Hopefully, it's only going to be going down. That contributes to a lower risk profile. And I think just macroeconomically, you look at how, you know, this recession that was predicted never really materialized. And all of the data is pointing to, 
probably not a recession, you know, coming this year at all. And the consumer, you know, which is whether you're looking at a consumer products business or just overall, the consumer is such a big part of our economy. Like the consumer's holding up. Now, granted, they've got they've, there's there's more debt on the balance sheet. There's a couple things to be watching and be kind of keep your eye on. But all of it is lining up for it to be a pretty big year for volume. It's definitely compared to last year. So I think that, you know, the public equity markets have obviously, they performed great in 2023. Uh, they tend to lead private markets. We didn't see the same kind of valuation uh, appreciation in uh, private markets in 23. We expect that'll some of that will now trickle through to private markets this year. Uh, and you know, one of the things that a lot of people like to talk about on a macro basis is the amount of just cash on balance sheets and cash in private equity firms. And, you know, there's still between corporate balance sheets and private equity, uh, two, two and a half trillion or more of cash. And we know because we get a lot of inbound inquiry from acquirers that that is now that that volume has picked up substantially. And so people now want wanting to make sure that if we have, when we have deals in market that they're seeing them, and then when you know our closer relationships are all telling us, hey, we're going to be even more active this year. So, and what's great about the lower middle market is, um, and actually the lower middle market outperformed the middle market last year in terms of just number of transactions overall because they're seen as slightly less risky transactions because normally they're, they're, they're sort of add on type transactions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, okay. And then a lot of people feel like, and, and historically the data also bears this out. You can get them for a little cheaper. Like if we're looking at kind of average multiples where they trade lower mm -hmm. middle market companies trade at lower multiples than middle market companies do. Okay. And so it's kind of, you got sort of a two birds with one stone. Take a little less risk with smaller bites, pay a little lower price. You know, you're not paying for as much for earnings. And I think what we see is that'll continue this year, except with so many other more buyers now feeling better about the risk, they're going to want to come in. And that should naturally drive up values um, because of just supply demand dynamics. Well, I think the other dynamic out there as I had a conversation earlier this morning with a, another investment banker where uh, they're ba they're based in the in the rust belt and he just said look in my area of Ohio we have a lot of private companies with owners and founders where the kids are not going to be following them and succeeding them in the business and so they're looking for an exit and I have a feeling those younger folks that want to go ahead and cut their own path and start their own thing they're coming your way because they're looking at getting some consumer products or some smaller ventures and building those up. So I think that's a great scenario where we just have a lot of stuff happening. It's also when you're smaller, you, we've got less regulatory scrutiny and some other things that tend to hold up those, those uh, you know, big signature deals that we read about in the paper. Um, yep. Jason Somerville from GW Partners. How can our audience members find you? Yeah, you know what? The best thing to do is uh, email. You can uh, email me at jason at gw.partners. Um, you can call me 704-771-2921. And then also I would encourage anybody to follow me on LinkedIn. We do a weekly, uh, we do a weekly deal tracker that we post on LinkedIn, which is really good content. If you want to stay up on 
all the M&A and uh, venture capital activity every week in the consumer products market. We post that um, with a little bit of commentary. So I would would urge you to follow me there too. We're going to do that immediately. Well, Jason Somerville from GW Partners, really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Appreciate it. 